Good morning. How's everybody doing? We'll go ahead and get started here. Everybody, volume okay? Everybody hearing all right? Good, good. Well, it's good to see you all this morning. Um, Let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here, to worship you, to love one another. Pray you'd grow our love for you. Um, Pray you grow us in obedience. Uh, Teach us your word. Um, Give us a heart that is fully committed to following you. And pray that, Holy Spirit, you would enable that obedience in our lives. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're getting pretty close to the end of uh, fundamentals. It's crazy. Hard to believe. We are on lesson 12 of 13. So First Peter coming up next. I think that'll be really exciting. First Peter is just an excellent book. Um, really uh, a great, it'll be a great study. So, and I believe our youth, right? Our youth are going through First Peter also. So on Sunday mornings, that'll be good to have us kind of on the same page with them, but very excited for that study and looking forward to that. But still got two more lessons here and fundamentals of the faith. Obedience today, that'll be the topic that we're looking at. Next week, final lesson will be on discerning the will of God, which is such a great topic, such a such a great thing to talk about. Um, and obedience is a huge part of that, right? Obedience is a huge part of just knowing, following what the will of God is for our lives. So before we get going, we do have a memory verse. There, well, here's our outline. So sorry, I thought we had the, the slide switched up here. The objectives for lesson 12. First of all, we'll talk about the centrality of obedience to, when it comes to growth in Christ. And really, there's kind of a cyclical relationship between obedience to Christ and growth in Christ. They both feed into one another. As you obey, you continue to grow more and more. And as you continue to grow more and more, obedience becomes an increasing part of your sanctification. And then we'll talk about the source of obedience. The source of obedience is never just you grit your teeth and it's never just you trying to follow a list of commands and laws. I read this quote from C.S. Lewis this past week, which I thought was pretty good. And it kind of contrasts what people popular in a popular way think about God versus what true obedience is. C.S. Lewis said, we might think that God wanted simply obedience to a set of rules, which is really how the world tends to think about God, is just following religion is a list, a system of rules, whereas what God really wants are people of a particular sort. That is people who love him, people who are committed to his glory, people who are reliant upon him in in that love that spirit filled love for God is really the source of our obedience but first we do have a memory verse to go with lesson 12 here first John 2 3 and 4 we'll read this together first John 2 3 and 4 says by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. This memory verse really captures for us much of what 1 John is about. 1 John is, you can call it a test of eternal life. What, What John does is he paints a picture for us. Here's what a believer looks like. Here's what an unbeliever looks like. And he allows us to reflect on that and see, okay, the pattern of our life, does it line up with what God says the life of a believer should look like? Obedience is very much a part of 1 John and very much a part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. The first thing we'll talk about as we look at obedience is the call to obedience, recognizing that there's been a weird debate at times in churches or even throughout 
church history, is obedience a part of the call to follow Christ? Like, is that really part of the gospel? Which is so strange and divorced from anything that Jesus, the apostles, the Bible, the New Testament teaches us about the call to follow Christ. What we'll see this morning very clearly is that the call to follow Christ is very much a call to obedience. It can't be separated. It can't be pulled apart. It's because it's an outflow of our love for God. It's an outflow of our love for God. When we come to a place of faith, a place of belief in Jesus Christ, that is coming to a place of recognizing that Jesus Christ is your Savior is your reconciler with the Father that because of your sin, you have been separated from eternal life, separated from God. You're, you're destined for eternal destruction. And Jesus Christ is your Savior, your Redeemer, your reconciler to the Father. If you come to a place of truly knowing and understanding that, you can't help but love Jesus Christ. You can't help but love God because faith, belief in Christ is much deeper than simply intellectual knowledge, intellectual acknowledgement of who Jesus is. Or James tells us even the demons believe that, yes, Jesus is the son of God and, uh, and they tremble, right? Uh, our belief is a much deeper faith that leads to love. And we experience this. Like if I'm going out for, let's say, a big job interview or something like that, and on my way out the door, my wife says, hey, I believe in you. Now, does she just believe that I exist? No, we've been married, right? Like 16 years. When she says, I believe in you, she's not stating an intellectual fact that I exist. What she's saying is that at a deeper level, she loves and trusts in me, right? So when we talk about faith in Christ and belief in Christ, we're talking about a, a faith that leads to love and this obedience is simply a natural outflow of that love. Look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. Matthew 22, 34 to 40. Who were the Pharisees? You got to know who the Pharisees are before we get into this. The Pharisees were really kind of the experts in the law at the time of Jesus. The religious experts in the Old Testament law, legalists, they, they had such confidence in their ability to be justified by the law that that's really where their faith was. It wasn't in God. It was in themselves and their ability to know and keep God's law. So they approached Jesus in verse 34, chapter 22 in Matthew. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, another kind of competing group, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. I love the response of Christ here because Jesus doesn't really come up with something new. He doesn't come up with something that we would necessarily call sophisticated or fancy. What he does is he just goes right back to the Old Testament that they claim to be experts in, that this guy would claim to be experts in, and he quotes a passage that this Pharisee, this lawyer, would be familiar with, and Jesus is essentially telling him, hey, you know this passage, you've just missed the whole point of it. Jesus goes back and he quotes what they call the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. to Jesus says to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The point that Jesus is making here is that your focus is not legalism. Your focus is not what people typically think of religion as just trying to follow some set of rules and laws. No, your call to follow Christ is a call to love God deeply. And if you love Christ, you're going to love the body of Christ, the church as well. You're going to love one another. 
If you love Christ, then you know how passionate he is about the church. And when you truly love somebody, you can't help but love the things that they love. And so the deeper your love grows for Christ, the deeper your love will grow for his church, for your neighbor, for one another. And on these two commandments, Jesus says, depend the law and the prophets. And, and this, when you look at 1 John and the test of eternal life and but what the picture is of a believer and the picture of an unbeliever, it comes back to love over and over and over again. John doesn't paint for us like, okay, here's a checklist of rules you need to be keeping. That's really what people typically approach Jesus to get. You know, they approach Jesus like, hey, okay, what's the checklist I need to follow? Think of the rich young ruler, right? Um, uh, and instead, Jesus, time and time again, along with First John, takes us back to love. First John five three. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome because you love Christ and you recognize what He has done for your 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 soul. That He has saved you and reconciled you to fellowship with God. And because of your love for him, his commandments are not burdensome. That it, it, as we said, is a be here, a natural part of the call to follow Christ. I've never understood how you can read the Bible and come away with any other conclusion than the call to discipleship is a call to obedience. Matthew 4.17, Jesus, the beginning of his ministry here, from the beginning on preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Can you repent without being obedient? Uh, Obedience is a very natural part of repentance. They go together. And this repentance is consistently a part of the call to follow Christ throughout the New Testament, whether it's Christ himself or the apostles. The message is always repent. And obedience is naturally a part of that. You look at the Great Commission. We went over this pretty extensively as a church plant and the the foundational passage that we were launched out from was this great commission. Jesus says to his apostles, Matthew 28, 19 to 20, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Obedience is completely intertwined in the Great Commission. Discipleship itself naturally involves obedience. A disciple of Jesus Christ is a follower of Christ who wants to know the truth that Jesus has to teach us who sees Jesus as the Son of God, the Word of God incarnate, wants to know the Word of God incarnate, wants to know the truth, and obviously obey it. Without obedience, you're demonstrating that you really have no clue who Jesus Christ is at all. But if you truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Word of God made flesh, that belief, that faith, as a disciple of his, leads to obedience. It's completely irrational to say, okay, yeah, Jesus is God-made flesh, and here's what he teaches, but I'm not really interested. No, that makes no sense at all. And as disciples of his, just as the Great Commission says, teaching others to observe all that he commands. Teaching others obedience. Again, it's not just Jesus, but it is his apostles as well. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul, I really love the way that God used Paul. Because the way God used Paul in most of his letters is he teaches doctrine in the first part of the letter. This isn't always, but it's a general pattern, you see. He teaches doctrine, 
And then he says, okay, here's how these theological truths apply to your life. You see it in Ephesians, you see it in Philippians. It's just a pattern. And Romans is set up like that. Romans chapters 1 through 11 are Paul's most extensive treatment or explanation on the gospel, how salvation works, the theology of the gospel. And then in verse 12, first of all, you got to look at chapter 11 and the way he concludes. I love the conclusion of chapter 11. It's like Paul's just so overwhelmed with the beauty of the gospel that he just breaks into praising God. And then in chapter 12, he switches to how we should respond to this. In chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, therefore, because of all these truths, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The, the, um, he says do this by the mercies of God. So this isn't just about your effort. But you do see here there's a lot that he calls you to do. This is another pattern that we're going to see when it comes to obedience. It is our 100% maximum effort at obedience as disciples of Christ. Yet we put forth this 100% effort by the mercies of God in full reliance upon the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to come back to this again, just seeing that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much effort you put. If you're not doing it in reliance on the power of God and the Holy Spirit in your life to give you victory, then you're really just flipping back to legalism, right? Um, the, the effort we put forth is in full reliance on the mercies of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. But he does tell us, by the mercies of God, here's what I want you to do. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. When he says present your bodies, that's your historical day-to-day existence. When you go to work, the way you interact with your family, your life in the church, your your, um, work as a student at school, your interaction with your neighbors, your bodies, your historical day-to-day existence is to be done and obedience is an act of worship to God. Your bodies, your, your historical day-to-day existence is to be a living and holy sacrifice. Holy. When something is holy, it is set apart and dedicated to the worship and service of God. My five-year-old, he had some um, torn up socks the other day. I picked them up. I was going to throw them away. I was like, hey, your socks have a huge hole in them. Uh, he goes, no, they're holy. They're dedicated to God. It's like, well, you got a little bit of things right there. But but no, holiness set apart, dedicated to God. Your 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 historical existence is dedicated to God so that everything you do gets reoriented around the purpose of of glorifying God. So you go, when you go to work, you think, okay, this isn't about just how am I going to be successful in my career and make money, but it's actually more about how am I going to go into the workplace and carry out the Great Commission? How am I going to go into the workplace and be a part of making disciples in this world, teaching them to obey Jesus Christ? So that when, when I interact with my boss and my coworkers, it's about, okay, how do I glorify God and, and be an encouragement, edify them? That's what your day-to-day life being set apart as a living and holy sacrifice looks like. And when it's a sacrifice, that means it's your entirety. Go back to the Old Testament. So as a Jew reading about sacrifices, you're instantly going to think about the sacrifices of the Old Testament. When, when, when they killed a bull, did they 50% kill a bull? 80% kill a bull? I mean, are there ever 75% sacrifices? No. It's in its entirety. When that, when that animal was set apart and dedicated for worship and sacrificed as a holy sacrifice, that's 100%. 
that's full commitment. That, that goat doesn't just get up off the altar and run off and go about its business. No, it's a complete sacrifice. That's, again, just calling in every aspect of your life. There's not to be any section of your life that is isolated or not brought under obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what obedience is about, where you take inventory of all the different components of your life and you make your body a living and holy sacrifice by bringing it all into submission to the gospel. Paul says in Romans 12, this is your spiritual service of worship. If you look in your margins for your translations, most of them will say that spiritual service of worship could also be translated your rational service of worship or a reasonable response. Uh, A spiritual service of worship, this is coming from the heart. This is coming from the innermost, the deepest parts. And this is the only reasonable response to true faith in the gospel. If you truly understand Romans chapters 1 through 11, and you've truly applied those to your life, this is the only reasonable response. Complete dedication of your life. Complete set apart, setting apart of your life to the service and worship of God. And much going from there in Romans is about, okay, what does this look like? How do we start to put this into practice at a deeper level? And just a quick preview that I think would really kind of capture where Paul goes from here. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is kind of the heart of obedience. This is where the Holy Spirit begins to sanctify you and change you. Before you're a follower of Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sin, sins. And you become an expert in sinful, worldly ways of thinking. That all has to be relearned. Your, your mind can no longer be conformed to this world. Is this world trying to conform your mind to something? Absolutely. I mean, that's like the all-day effort of this world from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed is the world is just flooding you with ideologies and information and ideas and influences trying to conform you to this world's way of thinking, to a sinful way of thinking. But our call is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. See, the Holy Spirit, if you're a follower of Christ, dwells within you and can teach you the truths of God. When you open up God's Word, you've got God Himself dwelling inside of you, illuminating His Scripture so that you can be transformed and renewed. And it takes work and it takes effort because again, from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed, you don't have to seek out the world's influences. The world's influences, they're going to find you. They're everywhere. TV, radio, co-workers, friends, family. The world's influences are everywhere and coming at you constantly. So as followers of Christ, to, to respond to this call of obedience, one of the main things we have to put effort towards is having our mind renewed by the truth of God. That's why daily Bible intake is absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. That should be the first response when you wake up in the morning. For me, it's typically second. It's like the coffee machine, then the Bible. But it's way up there, right? Like, it's got to be just uh, your initial reflex when you wake up in the morning. It's like, okay, I need to take in a good amount of God's Word. But here's the thing. You can't just shut it up, set it to the side, and then move on with your day, right? Because if you're anything like me, God's Word gets me on a good track to start my day, but then all the conforming influences of this world begin to instantly flood in, right? And so it becomes a battle throughout my day. How do I regularly, from hour to hour, take my mind back 
to the truths of God so that I can be transformed. That's where scripture memory comes into play. That's where meditation comes into play. That's where just, you know, at least making it a habit throughout the day to take your mind back. Okay, what's what's a verse that I'm really memorizing today and meditating on today and just having those things that that constant effort to not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of our mind it's part of the call to follow christ and it's got to be a growing part of your christian life as as you grow it's uh it's something that you need more of you become addicted to the word of God, you know, it's like, I just need more of this in my life because you're going to stumble, right? James three, two reminds us that we all stumble in many ways as if, and you become even more sensitive to this as you grow in your sanctification, as you grow in your walk with Christ, you become even more sensitive to the sin in your life. Um, we, we all stumble in many ways. Paul struggled with it. You look at, listen to Paul in Romans 7. I'm going to read this for us. Romans 7. See if you can relate to Paul here. I know I can. Paul says in Romans 7, verses 15 to 20, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. What Paul is addressing there is that as he continues in this battle to grow in his obedience to Christ and walk with Christ, he's, he's experiencing what we all can relate to. The fact that certainly we, as, as believers in Jesus, we have been born again. We have a spiritual life, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, creating the fruits of the Spirit that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. But we still have this unredeemed body. When we get to heaven, we get new bodies, imperishable imperishable bodies, uh, free from the effects and influences of sin. But while we're on this earth, we still struggle with this flesh and we feel this this battle between uh, in our lives between this new nature, the spiritual life we have within us, yet this unredeemed flesh. We, we stumble, but we press on. It's a, this call to obedience. It's a struggle, and it's a battle, and it's a war, and it's a growing part of the Christian life. Listen to what Paul says, Philippians 2, 12 to 13. He's encouraging the Philippians here. He says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. What he's talking about is not work for your salvation. This isn't Paul reverting back to legalism or some kind of work salvation. This isn't Paul saying, hey, you need to make sure that your obedience is up to a certain level, so you have your salvation. No, what he's saying is you have salvation. Now let this salvation that you already have flow out of your life, be at work in your life with fear and trembling, with with everything that you've got down to your innermost being. This is to be your passion and your commitment. But he goes on, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, constantly comes up with Paul, the synergy here between your effort, yet your effort put forth in full reliance upon the Holy Spirit. 
That's why Paul can say in verse six of Philipp- or verse six of chapter one, Philippians, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul wasn't confident in the sanctification of the Philippians because they were so good. Paul was confident in this growing obedience in their life because of his faith and the very power that saved them. See, that's what, when it comes to God's sovereignty and our salvation that we've talked about, it doesn't end at your salvation. But the same power that saves you is the same power that continues to work in your life and bring about sanctification in this growth. When I was young and didn't understand God's sovereignty, I was always so confused as to how the Bible could speak so confidently about the fruits of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. And I was always so confused how the Bible spoke so confidently about our spiritual growth because I didn't understand the sovereignty of God. Even as a believer, I just I was taught, in fact, that it was wrong and like that was the wrong way of thinking. And so when you pull the sovereignty of God out of the New Testament, it gets real confusing, right? But when somebody finally like showed me like, hey, this is what the Bible says and, and the Holy Spirit really illuminated that for me, then it made perfect sense how this growing obedience to Christ could confidently be spoken of in the New Testament because it was the same power that saved us that sanctified us. Paul had this confidence even for his own life. Um, While we saw in Romans, he certainly struggled just like we all do in the battle with sin. You look at Philippians chapter 3, 12 to 13, Paul talking about his own growth and his own sanctification. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Do you see Paul having that same perspective on the synergistic work of uh, his effort yet in full reliance on the Holy Spirit in his own life? It's right there in those verses. You know, he, he, um, he presses on. If you read other parts of Paul's writing, he talks about just the discipline that he had in his own walk, in his own life. Um, no idea what that is. Uh, and, uh, and he talks about just the commitment that he had to, to growth in Christ, yet he recognizes this isn't just like his own ambition or his, this isn't just some objective he sets up for himself, but he talks about, I lay hold of, or sorry, that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Your sanctification will be a growing part of your life in Christ. That's what marks a true believer. That's why when you look at 1 John, and 1 John's giving you this test of eternal life and saying, hey, here's what, what a believer looks like. 1 John doesn't ever say, go back to when you were nine years old and you prayed that prayer. 1 John doesn't say, go back to like that time when you're in high school and you prayed that prayer. No, First John says, look at the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Look at the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. That is the evidence of your salvation. That is the evidence of your salvation. That's why we can say the call to follow Christ, the call of discipleship is not just a call of obedience, but it also... Um, marks a true believer. It marks a true believer. Now you got to be careful here because the one of the hallmarks throughout human history, throughout the world, is sorry, I'm highly distracted right now. 
so one of the hallmarks of false religion is works-based salvation. And look throughout human history, right? Um, and consistently, it's you've got to have faith. Faith is almost always a part of it. But you need to do these things. You need to add these things to the faith in order to earn salvation. What's clear with the gospel is that is not what we're talking about. Faith plus works does not equal salvation. Instead, what scripture teaches us is faith equals salvation and works. Because when you become a believer, who dwells inside of you instantly? The Holy Spirit, instantly. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. Who is the power that saved you to start with? The Holy Spirit. God is the power that saves you. God is the power that brings about this sanctification. So that's why faith inevitably leads to salvation and works. Does that mean we all grow at the same pace? No. Does that mean we all grow in the same ways? No. James, again, go back to James. James said, hey, we all stumble in many ways. Go back to Paul. Paul struggled with sin. If Paul struggled with sin, look at even the life and ministry of Peter, right? Like the beautiful thing about Scripture, one among many beautiful things about Scripture, is how honest it is with us. It never excuses sin. It never says, hey, sin is something you can be okay with in your life. It's, in fact, the exact opposite. It says take a very strong approach to your sin. I mean, when Paul talks about pursuing your um sanctification he talks about it every time with the idea of putting 100 percent of your effort into it um, jesus said hey you know if your hand causes you to sin chop it off if your eye causes you to sin gouge it out and obviously not talking literally there but giving us um a word picture of just how serious we need to take sin so scripture never paints a picture for us that sin is something we can be content with in our life it's the opposite but um but it it does show us that it's something that we can wrestle with right and we will wrestle with but obedience that growing obedience while it's at different levels and at different speeds for all of us it marks the true believer first john you could really throw the whole book in here uh, for our letter of First John, but I'll just pull out a few verses. First John two five, um, whoever keeps God's word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. The First John four eight, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And of course, John in First John even recognizes that. Hey, I'm writing this to you so that you don't sin, but if you do sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us when we confess our sin. Obedience marks the true believer. Our last part here that we'll look at, obedience and consequences. Obedience and consequences. As a general rule, now you got to be real careful here. You don't take something like God blesses obedience and curses disobedience. You don't take that and go start applying it to everybody's life like, oh, well, their car broke down on the way to church. Obviously, they weren't coming to church with the best attitude. Or um, like, hey, this person got sick. I wonder what kind of sin is going on in their lives. I mean, go read Job. That was the problem with Job. As they took this overarching principle that God blesses obedience and God curses disobedience, and they tried to apply that in a very strict and um, simplistic way to the life of Job. And that's just not how it works. I mean, who has suffered at the hands of sinners more than Jesus Christ? Yet Christ is perfect. Christ is 100% sinless. So you got to have caution with this concept of God blesses obedience and curses disobedience. But as an overarching principle, this is what we see in Scripture. In fact, when God was giving the law to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, he said, hey, as I give you this law, recognize I am giving you a blessing 
and a curse. It's a blessing if you obey it, but it is a huge curse. If you are given the word of God, presented with the truth of God, and you deny him and you reject him, it'd be much better for you to just be ignorant of God's call to your life in the first place than to hear God's call and reject it. But God blesses obedience, curses disobedience. Uh, Deuteronomy 28. I'll read it for us real quick. God says, Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord. And then in verse 15, he flips to the disobedient side. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. You talk about the consequences of disobedience in this world. And... Paul lays it out very clearly for us in Romans chapter 1. And as you live in this world and you read Romans chapter 1, it just so clearly echoes and reflects what you see around you, right? Nobody can read, no believer can read Romans chapter 1 and not be like, yeah, it sounds like the world we live in, right? So listen to this. Romans chapter 1, the consequences and kind of the spiral of death that disobedience brings into this world. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise. Do you not think of the world? (laughs) I mean, professing to be wise. That is the world. Um, I don't know anything about IBM hardly, so this isn't a shot at them. But when they say, like, building a smarter planet, I always feel like it's so smug, you know? Um, Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. It's the world, right? Fast forward to chapter 12. This is the world you're not to be conformed with, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But this is the consequence of disobedience. See, the thing about sin is it leads to more sin. And disobedience leads to more disobedience. We see this play out in our own lives and in the world around us. Like nobody wakes up one morning and says, hey, I want my life to be a grease fire and a train wreck. 
and I want to be addicted to heroin and lose my family. Like, nobody wakes up and makes that decision one morning, right? But it's disobedience leads to disobedience. Sin leads to more sin, more death, more destruction. We see it in the world around us every day, every single day, in so many different facets and in so many different ways. It is the consequence of disobedience. But by God's grace and mercy, there's consequences to obedience. There's consequences to to obedience, the blessings that he promised. Psalm 1, geez, Psalm 1 is like, if somebody ever says, hey, come just some, come preach something to us, and I get to choose, Psalm 1 is pretty high on that list, almost always, because it's a beautiful picture of Deuteronomy 28 fleshed out in the lives of two individuals that Psalm 1 puts up as kind of a comparison. The righteous man versus the unrighteous man. How blessed is the man, and since we're talking about the consequences of obedience, we'll focus on that. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Did you see Romans 12, 1 and 2 right there? What we read earlier? Don't be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How blessed is the man who is not conformed to this world, but instead is transformed by the renewing of his mind. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The blessing that comes with that, he'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And look at this. If verse 6 doesn't get you excited, there's a problem. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Think about what he's saying there. If you are a follower of Christ, the infinite God of this universe, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, infinitely great, spoke creation into being and sustains it, this infinite God is intimately looking after you. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. Uh, this Wednesday night with the youth, we're coming up, we're going to talk about how Jesus, if you're a follower, of, or Jesus, he, he knows, I, I, sorry, I'm, it's not my notes, so I got it all mixed up here. I'm thinking forward to Wednesday nights. Uh, or Wednesday night, he, he knows the number of hairs on your head. I mean, he is intimately acquainted with and looking after every aspect of your life for his glory, for his purposes, and for your sanctification. That is a remarkable thing. There's consequences to disobedience, but there are amazing, amazingly glorious consequences to obedience. How do we apply all this? Be obedient. No. Um, live out Romans 12, 1 and 2. Live out Psalm 1. Don't be conformed to this world. This world is trying to conform you. It is trying to influence you. And if you don't think so, you've already lost the battle. You know, like if you don't recognize the world for what it is, a system in which God has temporarily given Satan reign and control and that the ideas that come at you throughout the day from all different angles are trying to influence you, that is what's happening, okay? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That requires you opening up the Word of God. And that requires you, um, that requires you applying your mind to the Word and the truths of God. Live out Romans 12, 1 and 2. Pursue love, not legalism. Pursue love, not legalism. Go back to what Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 22. 
focus on just contemplating who God is and what he means to your life so that you will grow in your love for him. And that depth of love naturally leads to wanting to obey what God has called you to do in your life. His commandments will no longer be burdensome, and it'll cause you to love one another more as well. If you have trouble serving in the church, and it just seems like a lot of work, and not something that you love, focus on your love for Christ, and your love for the church will grow as well. Full effort, yet with full reliance on the Holy Spirit. Don't forget where the power comes from. Don't forget that your life should be saturated with prayer and full reliance on God for the, um, for the, for the victory over sin and the victory in sanctification. It's full effort with full reliance upon God. And lastly, this is really ingrained in everything we've said, but it's got to be emphasized. The word is your guide. You, you cannot grow apart from the word of God. You cannot grow apart from saturating your life with the word of God. Find ways to make it happen. Wake up at whatever time you have to wake up to make sure you get to take in God's word or stay up as late as you have to stay up. But make it as high of a priority as eating. You know, um, Job said, I've treasured God's word as much as my daily food. And I don't know what Job had at that time. Nobody's exactly sure. But I promise you, he didn't have as much as you have. And I mean, it's remarkable, right? Uh, but cherish God's word as much as your daily food. And find ways. There, There's um, helpful Bible memory apps, scripture memory apps that are out there. There's flashcards. There's what you are memorizing in the home fellowships. Find ways to integrate that into your daily life. Like where once an hour you're thinking, okay, I need to take just a few moments here and reorient my life towards God's truth. The verse I'm meditating on today. Um, and uh, it's, it's really key to your spiritual growth and your obedience. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we do thank you so much for uh, just the fact that you've called us to be followers of you, disciples of you, and, and you lovingly, graciously, and willingly teach us. Give us your truth. You don't hide yourself from us. You don't make it some kind of difficult game, but you cry out to us and you give us the gift of your word, the gift of you, Holy Spirit, dwelling inside of us to teach us your word. And we just thank you so much for your gracious goodness. Pray that our hearts would be inspired to pursue you with everything that we have. And that as we do that, we would have our eye on you as the giver of victory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.